0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all today as we begin our Advent season. It is a special time of the year, I hope. Already, even just this last week, you kicked it off right by feasting well with your Thanksgiving. Any burnt turkeys? Anybody actually start a fire this year? So, I don't see any hands. don't want public embarrassment, but anyway, that always makes it more festive But I do love this time of year. I'm very thankful for, as we've already mentioned, the team that has brought this whole stage and room together to create an environment that uh, directs our mind to the season. We've kept the Resurrected Jesus mural. We've also added some new features, and we'll talk about some of that in a bit. If you've got your bulletins, you can see on there that our, our theme going through our Advent season this year is Light and Life to All He Brings. That continues that theme of light and of life that has been the subject of our study in the gospel of john since a long time ago when we started studying john Uh, it's a line taken from the third verse of hark the herald angels sing and we're going to be using this christmas hymn for the titles of all of our advent 2021 messages and so i wanted just to introduce the hymn to you a little bit kate miller she's a reference specialist in the music division of the library of congress which I think means that she's a history nerd. She did a good job tracing the history of this classic work. It began and first appeared in a collection called Hymns and Sacred Poems. You can actually see a a bit of the original, one of the original copies of this up on the screen behind me. A collection of Hymns and Sacred Poems published in 1739 by Charles Wesley. And yes, that is Charles Wesley, not his brother John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. Uh, But this is Charles Wesley, perhaps one of, if not the greatest hymn writer of all time. He produced over 6,000 published hymn texts uh, in his lifetime. But when he wrote his hymns, he typically did not even try to put them to music or compose music for them. He just collected them in these massive volumes of, of hymns and poems. And so in this 1739 collection there was a simple hymn poem that he had written called Hymn for Christmas Day. Hymn for Christmas Day. And it's a jubilant call for heaven, earth, and all the nations to join in worshiping Jesus in reflection on his birth. It's full of biblical allusions that pull in rich language from the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, really from one end of the Bible to the other. And Even so, it might have just sat there as a dusty relic in an old volume somewhere if it were not for the unusual providences of God that brought this random hymn, one out of 6,000, to the fore. That first providence of God came 14 years after its writing when Wesley's good friend and former fellow college student and powerful awakening preacher George Whitfield was reading through his friend Charles' book of poems, and he came across this text. He was a man accustomed to presenting God's truth to those without fancy college degrees, and so Whitfield looked at the first line of Wesley's song, which read this, Hark how all the welkin rings! Glory to the king of kings! And he must have thought, Charles, nobody knows what that means. Nobody knows what a welkin is. Heavens, by the way. And so he went full Chris Tomlin on the lyrics and produced a major revision of most of the verses. And the result was a more accessible text that now begins Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. But what good is an accessible song without a memorable tune? And that's where the second providence of God in this song comes in. The melody we know and love today would not be introduced until about 120 years later when English musician William Heyman Cummings, a fellow who had sung in a choir under this random guy named Mendelssohn, you may have heard of him, he came across Whitfield's version of Wesley's song in a book of poetry, and he had an epiphany. In one of those creative sparks that artsy folks experience from time to time, Cummings suddenly thought, you know, There's this melody line from this song I remember Mendelssohn wrote to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the printing press. And I'll be, if that doesn't fit just perfectly with this little text here. And so he brought them together, and it was a perfect pairing. And the resulting hymn has been a staple of the Christian church across denominations ever since. So not only is the hymn a wonderful treasure of theological truths, even if I have to take slight issue with Whitfield making the angel sing instead of say, but that's a minor issue. It's also a great example of how God loves bringing unlikely people and unlikely circumstances together to make a lasting impact. And our text this morning is one of those deceptively simple, Yet enduring interactions of Jesus with his disciples that might seem almost anticlimactic at first, after all we've been studying about the resurrection, but in reality perfectly brings John's gospel to a conclusion. And so I would invite you, if you have your copy of God's word, to turn with me this morning to the gospel of John, and we'll be turning to the final chapter, chapter 21, As you are able, and again, if it's a hardship, please don't feel obligated, but as you're able, would you stand to read along with me and honor God's word as we look at John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, says this. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter, and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, "'Children, do you have any fish? Do you?' They answered him, "'No.' And he said to them, "'Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch.' So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, "'It is the Lord.' So when Peter heard, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish which you have now caught.'" Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, a 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised From the dead. Would you pray with me? Father, it is a joy and a privilege to come this morning to your word and to the study of your risen Son. And even as we have just sung, what joy indeed there is for us who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you even for the testimony we heard earlier of your work in the life of Ken. And we look forward to an eternity in which we will get to hear over and over the many stories so unique, so different about how you have brought us to Christ, but they will all have this in common, that it was in fact Jesus and his death and your grace and your mercy that drew us to you. And so we come this morning and we ask that you would help us to better appreciate our Savior and to better understand how we might live for him, particularly at this time of year, as we anticipate celebrating that day when you sent your son, to this world, to be born as a man for sinners such as us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you have your bulletins this morning, if you have your outline in there, you'll see that our message is called Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead Sea. It's taken from that second verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, and that doesn't mean he didn't arrive on time. That's taken from the language in Peter that spoke about Jesus arriving at the end of the redemptive ark. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel." It's a verse that considers and explores the amazing truth that the eternal and majestic one was born as a man and was satisfied, was pleased to live with us as one of us, but without losing a drop of his divinity. The full majesty of his Godhead may have been veiled by flesh, but it was still there for us to see as Jesus manifested himself to us. He is indeed Emmanuel, God with us, and we see that in our text this morning. And for those perhaps visiting with us this week, we've spent the last several months looking at the trials, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And last Sunday, we looked at John's summary of the purpose of his gospel in calling us to believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and believing to have life in His name. And some have wondered then, having transitioned from that and looking at chapter 21, if this epilogue here in chapter 21 could really be a part of John's original gospel because it seems to have such an abrupt change of tone. Well, this chapter accomplishes many things that perfectly help bring this gospel to a fitting end. As commentators have noted, this chapter brings a resolution to the relationship of Peter and Jesus that was broken during the trials. It brings Peter and John forward into the direction of their future ministry. It helps believers understand the motivation of service and death in the name of Jesus, which we'll get to in future weeks. And it demonstrates the ongoing care and love of Jesus for his disciples. But I want us to focus on, I think, three helpful lessons in this passage For us this morning, and the first is this that the resurrected Jesus, after his resurrection, the resurrected Jesus is still manifesting himself and therefore manifesting the Godhead to his disciples. The resurrected Jesus is still providing for his disciples and he cares for them. And the resurrected Jesus is still interested in a relationship with his disciples that is personal and involves shared fellowship. And so our outline this morning is going to loosely follow that basic flow. So let's begin in verses 1 to 3 as we see the risen Jesus revealed again. The risen Jesus revealed again. If you're taking notes this morning, those are your blanks. And it begins in verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to his disciples. John has kept us fixed on the work of Jesus as the manifester, as the revealer of God from the beginning of his his gospel. If you recall, all the way back in John chapter 1, this was the message that John the Baptist was declaring right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29, said, the next day he saw Jesus, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him. But so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And then he goes on to speak of seeing the dove of the Holy Spirit come down from heaven, the voice of the Father speaking from heaven. And he concludes by saying, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God you recall, then just a chapter later when Jesus does his first public miracle by turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana, John wrote this, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. John's been showing us Jesus manifesting himself over and over, revealing his glory and the glory of the Father thereby. He's veiled in flesh, but in him, the Godhead we see over and over and over again until you get to Jesus in the upper room with his disciples in John chapter 17, the night of his betrayal. And he tells them this in John 17:6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. To see Jesus is a little bit like looking at a solar eclipse through those funny little glasses that they were passing out back in 2017. Remember those? It's something that we cannot... Observe, it is something too glorious for our eyes to survive, unveiled. But veiled, we can comprehend it in some degree. Jesus was like that. And consider how encouraging it is now that Jesus, even after his resurrection and even after his glorification, he does not simply disappear to rejoin the transcendent Unviewable splendor of heaven But he still chooses to manifest himself to his disciples in a way that they can behold One of the precious truths of the incarnation of the coming of God in human form is the accommodation of God to our human frailty It is a proof yes of the resurrection that Jesus repeatedly appears to so many after his resurrection But it is also a proof of his love for us that he is willing to stoop to our level. And it's part of the great hope of the Christian life that this love of Jesus will not be content to stoop to us forever. But one day he will raise us up in glory so that we might be able to continue to see him manifest himself to us, but to do so in his unveiled glory The Apostle John himself pointed us to this expectation in 1 John 3, 2 when he wrote, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And so until that day, we must in some way still behold as in a mirror dimly, but what we behold is true, even if veiled. So what is this manifestation that Jesus has in mind as he appears again to the disciples? Well, look with me at the next part of the verse here. Jesus manifested himself to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberius, and he manifested himself in this way. We see again this unique title, Sea of Tiberius, that John alone likes to use another name for the Sea of Galilee. And here's a nice little picture of it. I have a few pictures for you this morning. And I want, as you see these pictures, to remember that this actually happened, that Jesus actually manifested himself in this way. And and let these images, a lot of them are very old. They're all from the actual places. Uh, Let them evoke for you that sense of reality to this manifestation of Jesus. Jesus appears, back in the north at the Sea of Galilee. And it is a pretty lake, but honestly, not that impressive. Think Liberty Lake more than like Lake Coeur or something like that. It's just a little fishing lake. Jesus goes to this little place in the north and he appears, verse two, to Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee. And two other dudes who weren't important enough to name, apparently. The disciples here are specifically seven out of the larger group. Five are named, two are others. But it isn't an accident that Peter is mentioned first, because he's typically the man of action who gets things rolling, and this account is no exception. In verse three, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Notice he doesn't say, Hey, does anybody want to go fishing? He says, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat that night and they caught nothing. So some have seen here, perhaps some kind of a sinful act on the part of Peter that he should have been doing something holy, or maybe should have been down in Jerusalem. And so him going fishing is somehow him turning his back again on Jesus and on his calling. But I don't think there's any reason to see that in this text at all. In fact, as Mark records in his Gospels, the angels who were in the otherwise empty tomb on that resurrection Sunday told the women to deliver this message in Mark 16:7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So I think what's going on here is simply that the disciples have gone to the place. Jesus told them to go and they're waiting for him. And as many have discovered over the years, it is still important to eat even when you're waiting. So they're going to go do what they're good at to provide for their needs. They're going to fish. That's what they do. And they catch nothing all night long. And this is an old boat uh, that used to ply the waters of the Sea of Galilee I have another picture here in this next slide that actually shows a first century fishing boat, not necessarily the boat of Peter, but it would have been on the water at the same time as Peter's boat uh, that was used for fishing back in the time of Jesus. But anybody getting one of those senses of deja vu when you see disciples on a boat, Sea of Galilee, fishing all night long, boat's empty? Right. Anybody got that? Huh? I've heard this before. It's not recorded in john's gospel but many of you will recall that very similar account from the very beginning of jesus ministry when many of this same group of men not yet disciples of jesus had likewise fished all night and caught nothing on that same lake probably in that same boat and i wonder if they were even joking amongst themselves about that memory when they had encountered jesus and he had first called them to follow him And for a chapter leading up to Jesus repeating that call to follow him, even to death, it is harder to think of a better setup. So let's see how Jesus joins this scene. But first, a couple observations. Have a full view of Jesus. Have a full view of Jesus. One of the things that is always difficult as as mankind to wrestle with is the God-man Jesus Christ and the church has wrestled with this throughout its history, we tend either to skew our view of Jesus to some almost mythological, transcendent, ephemeral figure. He's the, the mighty one of heaven, the king up there, who is just too wonderful, too glorious for us to really have any close dealings with. He's a transcendent God who's distant. Or... We make him so like us in our imagining that, that he's our buddy, he's our friend, he's our help. He's just a, another dude who's, who's out there for us. We can, we can view him just with informal familiarity. And Jesus doesn't allow us to put him into either bucket because he is fully God and fully man, because he is veiled in flesh, but he is the fullness of God. And one of the things I think this Advent season that we can, as Christians, remind ourselves of and refresh ourselves in, as we consider a baby who's going to come and be born in an actual manger, you don't get much more informal than that. But that that was the baby who invented Electrons. And who knows background radiation to the edges of the galaxies, to the edge of the universe itself, who can name all the stars, and who holds all things together by the power of his word. Our our Savior is massive beyond the, the breadth of human comprehension, and yet he is near. And that—that that, that is a mystery that I think we are meant to relish in as the people of God, to be so thankful that we have a God who would draw near to us. And so in awe, indeed, even in fear, holy fear of the God who is infinite. And so this year, let's not allow Jesus to be reduced to just a baby in a manger, nor let us allow him to become some kind of untouchable story of glory from the from the distant past, he is Jesus, the infinite God man. Have a full view of Jesus. Secondly, briefly, appreciate God's repetition in our lives. Appreciate God's repetition in our lives. One of the things that is fun to watch throughout the gospels, throughout Scripture is how many times God likes telling the same story in a slightly different way. If you notice that, God loves telling the same story in a slightly different way. Obviously, he is absolutely setting up his disciples here. He is going to recapitulate that event that they had already experienced on the Sea of Galilee to make a new point and to draw out some new lessons. But one of the things that I think is fun for us to do is to recognize the stories God loves to tell. Like the stories of, I only show up in the nick of time. Or I bring life out of death. Or I produce joy in the midst of suffering. Or the wilderness always leads to the garden. God loves to repeat these stories. And I think a lot of our Christian angst could be turned into Christian anticipation if we began to catch on to some of these themes in our own lives a little sooner. This seems desperate. There seems to be no way out. What could be going on? Oh, I know this story. I know this story. It's not an easy story, but I know how this one ends. Learn, and we all need to learn to appreciate God's repetition in our lives as he tells his redemptive stories over and over in history and even over and over in us. Well, speaking of repetition, let's return to the disciples now. As I mentioned, they are about to experience some serious deja vu, and we'll see that in verses 4 through 8 as Jesus abundantly provides for his disciples. Jesus abundantly provides for his disciples Verse 4, but when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So it's just dawn now. Jesus has come to be standing on the shore. There's enough light to make out silhouettes, but not so much that you can recognize faces. For a gospel that has used darkness and light as a theme the entire way through, I think we should not miss the symbolism here. After a fruitless, dark night, light is dawning, and the light is accompanied by Jesus, who is the first to initiate now contact with his disciples. John brings this atmosphere once again into his story. And in verse 5, Jesus breaks the silence this way. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. This term here for children is a little bit unusual. It's not the normal term for child. It can be used for little children. But it was also a term that could be used informally as a term of endearment that a mentor or an elder might use for those in their care. One commentator tried to say it was sort of like our word lads. Or you might say, how's it going lads to your, your best friends or to those who are under your care? I don't know if there is a really good English equivalent. But Jesus reaches out across the waters with his voice and he says, lads, children, you don't have any food, do you? It is an interesting footnote that in all the New Testament, the only person other than Jesus in this passage to use this word for children to refer to beloved disciples is in fact John himself, as he does in 1 John 2:13 and 18. But children isn't the only unusual word. Jesus also here uses an unusual word for fish. It is a word that usually referred to fish when it was used, but it's a word that meant more literally a tasty tidbit. A tasty tidbit. Hey, you don't have any tasty tidbits, do you? And so it's a word that would have meant more than just asking if they had acquired an economic resource during their fishing, but if they had secured something yummy to satisfy their growling tummies. And also in a way that is peculiar to Greek and we can't really imitate in English very well, Jesus asks them the question in a way that assumes the answer is no. No, we don't have any tasty tidbits. And the disciples, lifelong experts at plying the waters of the Sea of Galilee, can only give that expected single syllable in response. Very fortunate, however, for the disciples and for their stomachs is the fact that they are not speaking With some nosy and condescending early riser. The question was not given to taunt them, it was to prepare them. And so in verse 6, he said to them, Cast the net on the right hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. This is what nets they would have been using. It was a small boat, so not a huge net. They would swing it out over the waters it would drop in a circle the weights would cause it to fall down but it was work you had to untangle it you had to prepare them you had to throw them you had to gather them back in you had to fold them up carefully so they didn't get tangled so it's a hassle but they obey jesus's voice anyway last time jesus had done this miracle if you recall he had said put the boat out into deep waters first and then cast your nets But now Jesus just says, throw it off the right side. And they don't know, or we don't know from the text why they were like, okay, we'll do it. It could be that that sense of deja vu has been kicking in extra strong here. Wait a minute, I've I've been here before. It could be that Jesus just had the sort of voice people tended to obey. But for whatever reason, they cast down their nets and then the water begins to churn. And now it's not hard to connect the dots. Verse seven. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So, when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. John is the first to verbalize the realization, and Peter is the first to act on it. John is rejoicing with his fellow disciples. That Jesus has appeared at last, but Peter is entirely focused on being with Jesus without any further delay. He is also the most practiced at jumping out of a boat to reach Jesus, if you recall. It was common for work to be done on the fishing boats stripped down to bare undergarments or even naked. It might be odd to us today, but in a trade working hard in the hot of the Middle East, And in a world where garments were extremely expensive, it was just good common sense. But Peter isn't going to meet Jesus with his skivvies on. He grabs his outer cloak, which is not good for swimming, but it was respectable to meet your Lord, and dives overboard, swimming as best he can with the added weight and drag of the clothes. The other disciples chose to be a little more patient. Verse eight, but the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. It's only a short time before they're able to bring the small boat and its overburdened nets alongside the shore to join the wet and dripping Peter at the side of Jesus. It's a beautiful scene, but before we get there, I do wanna stop here just to make a few more observations. And the first is this, remember what sort of savior we serve. Remember what sort of savior we serve I think sometimes we forget just how powerful and how mindful of us Jesus is. This is the Jesus who can arrange for fish to play dodge boat all night long. And he can also arrange for them all to lose at the exact same moment at his command. Maybe you feel like your nets have been coming up empty a lot recently. Relationships that feel like dead ends financial hardships that feel like literal empty nets, griefs and sufferings from which you have found little relief over a long night. I do not pretend to know what it is like to experience what you are going through, but look still to Jesus, who will always fill our net with what we need when we need it and do so abundantly. It may not look like we expected, and it may not come when we want it to. But whether in this life or in the life to come, Jesus will make our cup overflow to the praise of his name. Remember what sort of Savior we worship. And I call then, all you sinking sinners, swim to Jesus. All you sinking sinners, swim to Jesus. Do you notice that there is a very striking contrast between this story and the last time that it happened in the life of Peter? Remember Peter's reaction the first time that Jesus had given them a miraculous catch of fish back in Luke chapter five, verses eight to nine, when Simon Peter saw that he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish, which they had taken. Fast forward now to the, to the scene in that same boat on the same lake in front of the same savior with the same miracle. And remember that Peter is still carrying the crushing memory of denying Jesus three times the night of his betrayal. And probably has relived over and over in his mind that moment when Jesus looked right at him and made eye contact in the middle of his denials. But now we see Peter who has realized more than ever just how unworthy he is to be in the presence of Jesus. If he thought Jesus was too good for him before he had watched Jesus do all these miracles for three years, before Jesus had died, before Jesus had risen again, how much more unworthy must he realize he is of this man who is God. But now Peter has learned something else as well. He has learned to trust the love of Jesus a love so great that it was demonstrated on the cross. And instead of running away, he runs to Jesus. I think that is a great example for us to follow. Because even we who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, do we not sin grievously sometimes? And the temptation can be to hide in shame. Do not think so little of the love of our savior that we would tarry one instant but jump from the boat if you must swim through the cold waters get to the feet of jesus to find that relationship restored and if that's something that needs to happen this advent season what a wonderful way for us to prepare our hearts to celebrate his coming whether we are considering physical needs or all the blessings in the heavenly places. In Jesus, we see such an encouraging reminder that there is abundant provision for his disciples. But there is more here than just provision. Jesus didn't simply call them to cast their nets, give them all this fish and then turn and wave goodbye, enjoy the fish, lads, and poof, off to the next place. No, Jesus moves from provision to fellowship and gives us another helpful manifestation of who he is in the process. Look with me at our final section verses 9 to 14. Jesus personally fellowships with his disciples, with his disciples. Verse 9, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. The disciples step off from the boat, leaving for the time being, their nets still teeming with fish, and they approach Jesus. Jesus has prepared for their arrival. They can feel the warmth of hot coals off a charcoal fire. They can smell that delicious smell of fresh grilled fish and hearty bread. St. Augustine devotes at least two whole paragraphs to explain to us that we should not think Jesus had put the bread on the coals and burned it. The bread was separate. Only the fish were on the coals. So I don't think we need two paragraphs on that. But just so you know, Jesus knows what to do with the bread. When Jesus had asked if the disciples had any tasty tidbits, he was already finishing up the first course of the meal for them to enjoy. When John notes that this was a charcoal fire, I think it also brings us back to the last time we saw a charcoal fire in John's gospel which was in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house when Jesus was being tried and when Peter was denying. Peter had faced three questions in front of a charcoal fire and had failed all three. And soon he will face three more questions before this charcoal fire, but not just yet. So many symbols and themes are tying up in this chapter. It's fun just to read and, and watch how John, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is bringing so many things together and illustrating so many things and leaving us with such a seemingly simple but wonderfully practical set of lessons. We also see here echoes of Jesus' miraculous meal when he had caused bread and fish to multiply to feed the thousands. And now look with me at verses 10 to 13 and see how profoundly simple after all this setup, the actual meal unfolds. And yet in this simplicity, these verses teach us much. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish which you have now caught.' Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn." The disciples appear to be standing there not knowing what to say or what to do. And so Jesus again breaks the silence. Go attend to all those fish that you just caught. Bring some of them here so that there can be seconds. Go get some fish. There's a picture of some of the kinds of large fish you can pull out of the Sea of Galilee. Some of you are getting hungry now too, right? Peter, who had skipped out on helping get the boat to shore, he now rushes off again. He's first to action to obey the words of Jesus. And he must have been a fairly strong fellow, for he single-handedly draws all these nets to land and then sorts the fish out with the practiced hand of a professional. Too many trees have died so that theologians could argue about the symbolic significance of the number 153. I think the best summary I've read comes from one of our own resident theologians, Cheryl Bosch, who said, why 153? Because Jesus is more than enough. A fisherman knows how many fish were caught. And the point is not to dig into the numerology of 153, but to read it and think, wow, that's a lot of fish. Jesus didn't provide what they needed. He provided lavishly more when the time was right. And also notice, fishermen spend a lot of times after you haul fish ashore mending nets. Besides attending the fish, Peter also looked over his nets, as any good fisherman would do, and discovered another miracle had taken place. No matter how you fish with nets, you end up needing to do a little mending. When a net is overwhelmed like this one and then dragged up onto shore, the nets can get positively shredded. But this net, however, had survived completely intact. No time will be wasted on repairs. The attention of the disciples can be given completely to Jesus. And so in verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. What comforting words these are. Come and have breakfast. The disciples are still figuring out what to say and what to do around their risen Savior. They are apparently stuck between still coming to terms with the reality of the resurrection. Is that really you? And the emerging confidence of knowing. Yes, it is. And they're sort of just stuck there as they eat together around this little meal on the shore of Galilee. Jesus, for his part, does not leave them in awkward confusion for long. Notice that it is he that takes the bread and gives it to them. It is he that takes the fish and gives it to them. Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead veiled in flesh. Jesus, the risen Savior. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, the one who washes disciples' feet the one who serves them bread and fish when they are too astonished and unsure even to speak. This is the Jesus that we love and in whose name we gather this morning. And there is so much more to come as Jesus continues the conversation with his disciples. But we'll end this morning with this scene that we have looked at so far as John himself brings a break into the account with these words in verse 14. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. After the events of Resurrection Sunday, after the appearing of the disciples eight days later, this is the third manifestation of Jesus to his disciples. And we have seen a lot in this passage. And I want to close by just drawing our attention to just a couple things. First is the power of a meal power of a meal. We had the privilege this week of having one of our global outreach partners, Aaron, with us in our sermon prep time. And he pointed out as we went through this passage, how simple and yet how effective it is to bring people into the sharing of a meal together and how often Jesus used that in his own life and ministry. It is a cliche that church functions require food. But there is some good instinct behind that tendency to share a meal with someone is to invite them into a shared partaking. When we gathered for Thanksgiving celebrations, as we prepare to gather for Christmas feasts, we should not be ashamed if there are 153 large fish ready for grilling. Let them be lavish feasts. But let us try to make sure our gratitude, our joy, and our hospitality is as lavish and excessive as the generosity of God to us. What are strategic ways perhaps you can consider even now for you to use your home and for you to use your table as simple as it might be to be able to be a celebration of God's goodness and an invitation to others to share in fellowship with Christ. And perhaps if you've found ways to do that effectively through your home, you can share some of those ideas and experiences this week at your life groups. Secondly, cast, bring, and eat. Cast, bring, and eat. Jesus gives three commands to his disciples over the course of this scene, and it's hard not to see in them a helpful pattern that applies not only to this account, but also serves as a model for all Christian life and ministry. We are to cast, whether it's the net of the gospel and evangelism, or whether it's faithful obedience to the responsibilities God has given you, do not tire in casting your nets, even if it's been a seemingly barren experience for far too long. We are only responsible for our obedience and for our faithfulness, and Jesus will fill our nets when it is the right time. And bring all of who we are and all of what God has provided for us is to be offered for the Lord's use. It's important to remember here that this isn't because in the story, Jesus would have gone hungry if the disciples didn't give him their fish. No, he had the fish already cooked and ready to go, but he still allowed the disciples to participate in what he was doing. And this is our great privilege as well. God does not need us. We don't bring our gifts, abilities, resources, and people to Jesus because he has some lack, but because he has invited and allowed and instructed us to participate in his work. And it's an honor to do so. And finally, eat. What a blessing to not merely serve as slaves only, but to eat at the table of Jesus as brothers and as friends. Jesus gives us of himself to partake and he fellowships with us in love. And as we move through Advent this year, let every meal we take be a chance to remember and rejoice that Jesus invites sinners to sit with him and receive from him. And speaking of meals, I want to transition into our time around the Lord's table this morning as the music team comes up with this final observation and question Are you ready for breakfast? Are you ready for breakfast? Breakfast is the first meal after the darkness is over and you finally can share a meal in the light of a new day. And in some ways you could say we are living now through the long night between the first and second advent or coming of Jesus. If you recall back in Luke chapter 5, Jesus was being criticized by the Pharisees because unlike John's disciples, the, John the Baptist, who were always fasting, Jesus' disciples were feasting. What's up with that? And Jesus told them, do you remember? The bridegroom's here. Of course my disciples are feasting. But I'm going to leave one day and then they will fast. And that is where we find ourselves today. This is the season of fasting. We are joined to our Savior by the unbreakable bonds of the new covenant into which we have entered by faith in the work of Jesus. But we are still apart from Him. We do not yet see him. We are waiting to break our fast. We are anticipating that great coming feast which will take place in the house of God at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when we partake of communion, it is a meal that in some ways should leave us even hungrier afterwards. We remember the body and the blood of Jesus by which he purchased for himself An imperfect bride, the church. And we proclaim his death each time we take it together until he comes. And when he does, he will call to us and say, Come and have breakfast. Share a meal with me. This meal is the price of that meal. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for sending your son into this world. Thank you for his sacrifice. And as we mark it now and remember his body broken for us and his blood spilled for us, may we do so humbly and worshipfully and gratefully. May we feast in celebration of who you are and what you've done. May we fast in solemn recognition of who we are and of how far we have yet to go to become like you and to declare our dependence on you still, that our nets are empty unless you fill them. And yet, Lord, we ask that you would give us the strength and faithfulness to you to bring such as you give us and employ it in your service to find great contentment and satisfaction and being allowed to participate in that great work you are doing, to glorify yourself, to glorify your son, and even, Lord, to bring such as we are to glory as well. And so this we remember and this we mark on this first Sunday of Advent and we do so in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take together.